Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Tonight we're at verses 20 through 25. This is on page uh, 1004 in the Black Pew Bible. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a couple of questions. If I ask you, what's the point of life? What's the reason we're here? I wonder how you would put it. Or if I ask you, what's the primary theme of the Bible? What's it about? Would your answers be the same? This would be my answer. The story of the whole Bible and the whole point of life is this. God made us to be near to him, to know him, to enjoy him, to walk with him. And we said, no, this is the story of the Bible. At the beginning, in the garden of God, our representative, Adam, said no. And God gave what we asked. He put us out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. And yet, God promised what we had no inkling to expect. He would send someone to restore us, to open the way in, to take us home to himself. And everything in the Old Testament is preparation for the coming of Jesus who does that. Everything in the Old Testament it promises the Savior, either in words of promise or in pictures or in sacrifices. As we've seen in Hebrews chapter 7, bringing it back to chapter 7, that's what the priesthood of Jesus is about. That's what the Old Testament priesthood of the Levites was about. But it didn't bring, we saw last week in verses 10 to 19, it didn't bring the perfection or the completion of all that God intends. It wasn't permanent. It was, in fact, he even uses the very shocking language, it was weak. It was useless to accomplish what only Jesus really can accomplish. And that was its point, to lead us on to Jesus. And so in chapter 7, verse 19, right before the passage where we get, the writer of Hebrews says that in the coming of Jesus, as the great high priest, we have a better hope through which we draw near to God. Because Jesus is a better priest. Now, Who among us needs to hear this tonight? We'll get to the passage just after this. Who needs to hear this? Well, for the original readers, it was mainly Jewish Christians, many perhaps young believers in the Messiah who had been Jewish, and they were some ready to forsake him, ready to return to Judaism and the Levitical priesthood due either to family pressure or persecution of some kind. And the writer says, don't go back. If you return, you're returning to something that's temporary, something that's partial, that's something that doesn't really get you what you want. Stick with what's better. Jesus is better. This is also addressed uh, to those of us, among us. If, If you have never made effective contact with God. If you 
feel like every time you have ever prayed, your hairs, your, your prayers just smack the ceiling. This passage before us is for you. It's for fearful younger Christians. People who are uh, past what some have experienced to be the kind of honeymoon stage of the Christian life. And now that they're a little bit older, they've discovered that Christianity is a lot harder. Living the Christian life is a lot harder than they thought it was going to be. Partly because they've discovered they're worse than they thought they were. They're weaker and more frail. And some are fearful that they won't make it to the finish line. And for any of us who are just barely holding on, we all are there at times. This text says you have a better hope in Jesus. He's a a great high priest. And so we want to think tonight about why is Jesus uh, a better hope? Why is his priesthood a better hope that really, really brings us to God? And so tonight we're in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 10 through 25. Let me invite you to pay attention to God's word. Speaking of the priesthood of Jesus. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, quote, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Grant that it would be life to our souls by leading us to Jesus. Be our teacher, we pray in his name. Amen. Why is Jesus a better priest for you? Three points from the passage. First, because of God's oath, verses 20 and 21. Second, Because he's the guarantor of a better covenant, verse 22. And thirdly, in verses 23 to 25, because he always lives to intercede for you. Because of God's oath, because he's the guarantor, because he makes intercession. Those three things here make him a better priest. In the first place, consider God's oath. The oath that makes him a permanent priest, verses 20 and 21. He begins in here by reminding you that his priesthood was not without an oath. And by contrast, for those who were formerly uh, became priests, were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest 
with an oath. In other words, he's reminding you that no Old Testament priest held his position by promise or oath. They held their position by regulations, by ceremonial laws about physical descent from fathers who were in the line of Aaron and Levi. And that was all temporary, he says. And their priesthood always ended in death, in the death of the priest. And responsibility for the priesthood always had to be passed on to the next guy, father to son. But the priesthood of Jesus, he said, is very different. God promised it and God swore an oath about it. What's the oath? Verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 110 here as he's done before in this chapter. You will be a priest forever. This was a promise to the Messiah. And God, he says, will not go back on his word. He will not change his mind. Now look, God's bare word is enough to make his promise certain. But when he adds the oath, it's like underlining. It's like putting it in all capitals. It's like bolding it. It's, it's like putting it in brackets with exclamation points after it. We, we last heard about God taking an oath in, in Hebrews chapter 6, if you recall. We learned some things there about oath taking. Back in Hebrews 6, God took a, a different oath. In, in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, he took an oath to Abraham. And it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God added an oath, swearing he would multiply him. Why did God take an oath? Not because God needed it, but because we needed it. We have trouble following through on our word. We have trouble doing what we say we will do. And so we struggle to believe others when they make promises. It's human nature being what it is. We are completely reliable people. We sometimes have very good reason not to account the word of another person as reliable. And so what do we do? We make people swear on something greater than themselves. And the assumption is that the greater someone will hold them accountable for the word that they've shared, for the promise they've made. They've made. And, that, and in fact, that the fear of being held accountable will make them truthful and faithful. When they otherwise might not be. But God is never untruthful. He is never unfaithful. He doesn't need to take an oath to guarantee his own word. But he accommodates us. He does it to further convince us. Because we're simply weak in believing. We're distrusting of him. And this we said when we looked at this before. Spoke so highly of his humility. He swears As if his bare word is not enough when it is. He swears as if he's like us when he isn't. Just so that we'll have greater confidence in him. And that shows you how lovely he is. He acts in a manner that hints that he's somehow like us when he isn't. Just so we'll have greater assurance 
just so we can trust him when he says he'll do something. Now back to Hebrews chapter 7 here. His purpose in swearing, again, is to assure, and, and the oath is in this case to the Messiah, to Jesus, that his priesthood will last forever. How will Abraham be a blessing to the whole world? Abraham's offspring will multiply, but one offspring will be the Messiah through whom all will be blessed because that offspring will be a priest available to every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And it will go on forever. Under the old covenant system, you never knew what you were going to get. You might get a faithful Eli, under whom Samuel was placed, nurtured, raised, trained, and God spoke to him the word. Or you might get Eli's wicked sons. The Bible describes them as worthless men who did not know the Lord, men who treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. That's way back at the start of Israel. You get to the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet, Malachi. And Malachi is indicting the people for all kinds of things. One of his first indictments is against the priests because they despise the name of the God. They profane the name of God. Imagine if you got that priest and you as a genuine believer know he's a wicked man who doesn't give a rip about anything he's doing, but he's there by natural descent. Now you would long for a good and holy priest and one who lasted forever. It never changed, and it would be better that way, and it is better that way. This is what the writer is saying. God is promising there will be no gaps in his priesthood. He'll never be asleep at the switch. There's no potential mishandling of the baton as as an exchange uh, takes place between him and another. There is no other. There's no need for another. There will be no fluctuation in the quality of his work. He will be available to you every moment you need him. Age and infirmity will never wear him out. You never have to worry that he's going to walk away for a few minutes and be absent from the desk just as your phone call got placed through to heaven. He is always there, always on duty, ever watchful, always interceding and he has the undiminished and uninterrupted ear of the father himself at all times and so he will be there to see you through every single step of this life and on into eternity as well because god made an oath that he will be priest forever that's why he's better Second reason he's better. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Guarantor of a better covenant. Two words, key words, guarantor and covenant. Take them in reverse order. This is the first use of the word covenant in Hebrews. The writer will go on to use it 18 more times. Over half of all the uses of the word covenant are found in Hebrews. So we'll have much more to say about covenant as it comes up later in the book but briefly what is a covenant it is in very brief a binding relationship 
God enters into relationship with us and brings us into relationship with himself and he binds us together. Think of it in terms of other kinds of relationships. A covenant means God is not flirting with us. People who are flirting may just be trying to get a rise out of each other. Maybe gauge interest. Maybe prove they can entice others. They've got the goods. They may just be toying with each other. They may be trying to get an introduction. But God isn't like that. God's covenant means he's also not dating us. People who are dating may be trying to figure out very genuinely if the other person is compatible for a lifetime together. If they're the one you're really looking for, they may be trying you on for size. That's not all bad. There's a time to discover that there is a variety of fish in the sea. One of them might be just right for you, so to speak. But how do you know? Unless you look around. You may be dating and you may be serious, but still dating means you're keeping your options open or the other person may be keeping their options open. God isn't like that either. There's a different kind of relationship, a deeper commitment, a pledge of lifelong fidelity and love. You know it as biblical marriage. We vow in it traditionally, I promise and covenant before God and these witnesses that I will be your loving and faithful spouse in sickness and in health, in riches and in poverty, in joy and in sorrow, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. We make this kind of covenant in marriage because marriage is both God's idea and God's way of relating to his people. Jesus marries his bride. He makes a covenant commitment to her and we're just reflecting that in biblical marriage. We're playing out the drama of God and his people. And so the point is this, God isn't toying with you. He hasn't kept his options open with you. He's not ready to move on when he figures out who you really are. He's bound himself to you and you to him. And in Jesus, we have a better covenant. And there he's contrasting under Moses with in Jesus. That old covenant under Moses was good as far as it went. It wasn't bad. What we have is not good versus bad, but better versus the good that was. It was good, but it was never meant to be all. And so we've gone from good to better. Under Moses, it was insufficient, incomplete, partial, and temporary. But it pointed you to the one who is perfect and perpetual. And who is powerful by reason of his living indestructible life, never to die. To be a sufficient priest for you. So a better priest guarantees a better covenant. Now notice that word guarantor. He is the guarantor. If you have the King James, he is the surety of a better covenant. It's also a very good translation of the word. This is the only New Testament use of the word. What's it mean? A surety or a guarantor agrees to take on the obligations of another in order to see that they are fulfilled. It might mean paying off another person's debt. 
It may, be, may mean fulfilling another person's responsibility of some kind. A guarantor stands in the place of the other if the other fails. Agree to be a surety or a guarantor to a failure, a fool, or a felon, and you could very well be in big trouble. Who knows what kinds of things you might have to do to make things right if you guarantee that kind of person. This is why Proverbs 11 verse 15 says, whoever puts up security, that that is, becomes a surety for or a guarantor for, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm. It warns and cautions. According to one historical survey, a person exposed himself by being a surety to financial ruin, imprisonment, slavery, even execution by being a guarantor of another. No wonder that Proverbs chapter 6 warns us against being a guarantor for our neighbor or a stranger. Save yourself, it says. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the arm of a fowler. Rescue yourself. Get out of it as quickly as you can. Because danger lurks ahead. You don't know what kind of trouble you're going to be in. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, you remember, who willingly and voluntarily became our guarantor, suffered hell on a cross as surety for us. There are two interesting examples of of this in the Bible of the use of this word in in life. Uh, The one is in the Old Testament, one is with the Apostle Paul. In the Old Testament, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, you remember that when they went down to Egypt because of a famine, they went down a second time to get grain because their families were starving. Judah reminded his father before he went the second time that the Egyptian ruler who they didn't realize at this point was actually their brother Joseph, whom they sold into slavery. So they would have feared him had they known. But they didn't know. But that ruler had said, now, before you can get more food from me, you've got to bring your youngest brother Benjamin with you to Egypt. Joseph, of course, wanted to meet his younger brother, whom he had not. Only after Judah offered to be the security for Benjamin... Did his father reluctantly agree to it? In Genesis chapter 43, verse 9, I will be, he says, a pledge, that's surety or guarantor of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And then interestingly, after they do receive more food, because they do send Benjamin, Joseph Plots in order to capture Benjamin and bring him back to Egypt. You can read about it in Genesis 43 and 44. And Benjamin is held. And so then Judah offers to Joseph to be the guarantor of Benjamin in order to be faithful to his guarantee to his father about Benjamin. And he says, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. As a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. Me for him. Is what he's saying. You see this kind of same idea in in, uh, the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul 
encounters the slave, the runaway slave, Onesimus. And Onesimus uh, is converted, becomes a dear brother in the Lord. They love one another. Paul, knowing who his master is, sends Onesimus back with the letter, which we call Philemon. And in it, he says to Philemon, the master, if he, that is Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Let his debts be mine. I'll be his guarantor, is what he's saying. So the point here is that Jesus does more than just mediate the covenant. He does more than just stand between God and us, bringing us together, though he does that. He actually guarantees the covenant. He is, therefore, the ground of your assurance of salvation. You may say to yourself, look, I know me. I can't fulfill all the obligations of a relationship with God. I can't be covenantally faithful. I wasn't even covenantally faithful to God today. I thought only about myself. I cared only about me. I transgressed his law. I failed to do all that I should do. I can't keep up my part in this relationship. I struggle even to repent and believe, knowing all the worst about me. And the gospel says to you, good news, Jesus says, I am covenantally faithful for you. I take your obligations. I suffer your failures. And this is pictured in some ways by the Old Testament high priest who would enter the Holy of Holy, not only in his own name, but in that of the people as one who, as it were, carried on his shoulders and on his chest the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on him so that they all went into the sanctuary together in the person of the one man who was allowed to go, which spoke of assurance. God accepts him and we go with him in it. Jesus does that genuinely for us. He's a better priest of a better covenant so that you can draw near to God. Does your heart sing, arise my soul, arise, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears before the throne my surety stands. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. That's why he's a better priest. And the third reason is this, because he intercedes for believers continuously. Look at verses 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now pause there. Again, permanently there. It doesn't mean that it just so happens to continue. It means unchangeable. It is an unchangeable, uh, an unalterable priesthood. It can't be anything other than permanent because he is risen as an indestructible life. So then, verse 25, he is to say, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely or perfectly or always it, it, it means all these things 
He is, in other words, the great shepherd who never loses his sheep. He never loses one. Why? Last phrase, because he always lives to intercede for them, for you. You remember Peter's infamous failure, right? He very publicly denied knowing Jesus multiple times to Jesus' face. But do you remember that Jesus had actually foretold that he would do that? And do you remember what Jesus promised Peter beforehand? Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, that's Simon Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan will sift you, he says. You will be tempted. You will deny me. But your failure in faithfulness will not mean you lose your faith fully and finally or forever. Why? I have prayed for you. Next phrase. So when you've turned again... It's not in doubt when it happens, not if it happens, when it happens. Why? Because I interceded for you and my intercession is always effective. I always get exactly what I want. And you, you, you don't even think to pray for yourself. And you don't know so often what words to use when you do pray. Or you start and you give up. You completely miss what it was you're supposed to be praying for. You begin to daydream. You fall asleep. You just ignore God for a day or a week or a month. Some of us have experience in these things. But don't panic. Jesus always lives to intercede for you. Your name is always in his heart and on his lips. Your faith will not fail no matter how far you fall. Have you ever thought of the number of times that you might have gone crashing into the dust spiritually and never recovered, been unrecoverable if it was not for a faithful Savior who always intercedes for you. For what kinds of things does he intercede for us? We catch a glimpse of it in John chapter 17, where we see him at prayer for his people. If you wanted to turn to John 17 sometime, do so and read what he's praying. Let me just highlight five or six things. It's often called his high priestly prayer. Granted, it was before his death and resurrection. But you see Jesus interceding. What is he praying? Verse 9, John 17. I am praying for them. This is his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, by the way, that idea is repeated here, actually, in Hebrews chapter 7. For whom does he intercede? He always lives to, to intercede 
for them. Who are the for them? Just the phrase before, for those who draw near to God through him. This is who he's praying for. Not for the world, but for those who draw near through him. What sort of intercession is he making? Verse 11, Holy Father, he prays, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, he intercedes so that we are kept by God and made one people, one family in union with Jesus. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, he's praying or interceding for our protection from the enemy of our soul. So that while we live in a dangerous world with spiritual forces against us, we come to no eternal spiritual harm. We will have our hurts in this life, but no eternal harm. Because Jesus intercedes. He prays, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, he intercedes that we would be set apart for God in the truth. And that that truth would change us. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. By the way, isn't that interesting? I will, Father, this. It's not even, it's not that he's pleading to twist the arm of the Father. We'll come back to that. He's simply declaring his own will to the Father who is in agreement with him about these things. I will that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, he's interceding so that we'll be taken safely to heaven to him to see his glory. It is certain. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He intercedes so that the love of Christ will be in us, so that Christ himself will be in us. And we might add that he, as we've seen in Hebrews chapter 4, he is a sympathetic high priest He is interceding for us in all our troubles, in all our sorrows, in all our temptations. Because he understands. Because he's walked in our shoes. He's been a man in this world. You know how it is when you talk to somebody who has no idea what you are going through. And you walk away and you think, they don't get me at all. Jesus is never like that. He gets you completely. He knows exactly what you need. He has been where you are. And he is a sympathetic high priest. And so again, you see how this assures us of eternal life. Life, We will never be lost. He, as Philip Hughes says, he who, uh, how can we who draw near to God through Christ fail to be eternally secure In view of the fact that not only uh, that he always lives, but also that as our ever-living priest, he never ceases to make intercession for us in the heavenly sanctuary. With him as our intercessor, supporting us with his love, there is no force that can daunt or overpower us. 
And so let me conclude by saying this. There are two errors to be avoided when you think about his intercession. First error, that is to rely on someone or something else to have access to God. You and I are not to rely upon other priests, other mediators by which we come to God. We don't need angels or saints or the Virgin Mary or any other finite being to bring us near to God. And in fact, to rely on those, as again Philip Hughes puts it, both betrays a failure of confidence in the adequacy of Christ as our intercessor, and it is to honor the creature rather than him who is our creator and redeemer. But the second error is this. Jesus is not to be thought of standing before God with his hands outstretched, as sometimes you see in pictures, with strong crying and loud pleading and tears, pleading our cause before the throne of a reluctant God who needs to be persuaded by Jesus to do that which he has no interest in doing. You are not to think of him interceding for you in that way at all. He's not talking the Father into doing something the Father doesn't want to do. He is a throned priest king asking what he will from a Father who always hears and always grants his request. Which is another way of saying God is one God. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one deity of one mind, of one will and one in love the son didn't come to get the father to love you the coming of the son is the very expression of the father's love for you who so loved you that he sent his son for you the father isn't unwilling jesus is standing and together they are interceding and dispersing the blessings of his grace. This priest was sent by God for you to bring you back to God. Don't be shy about drawing near through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Grant that we would have the confidence of children before a loving father as the younger brothers and sisters of our dear elder brother Jesus. And grant us to know that in all our weakness, you are able and you're looking after us. Be glorified in that and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.